0: The title of this morning's message is The Fruit of Extravagant Grace. This morning we listened to C.C. Winans sing the song The Alabaster Box, in which she talks about how Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anointed Jesus with the contents of her very own alabaster box of perfume just two days before his death. I chose for you to hear this song because I wanted you to get a picture in your mind of the extravagance of Mary's love, devotion, and thanksgiving. Scripture tells us within the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John about that particular story, about how Mary poured as much as a pound, a pound of spikenard on Jesus' head and feet. That amount of perfume would have been extremely expensive. It would have been valued at approximately the equivalent of a year's wages. It was an extremely lavish gift. It was common for wealthier Jewish women, like Mary, to have such alabaster boxes as a dowry. So since there's no hint of Mary having had a husband, this gift was probably her very own dowry. And she poured it on her spiritual husband. So this was an amazing offering of worship, adoration, and honor that she gave to Jesus. Why would Mary pour out such an expensive and personal gift? Mary's actions may have been prompted by her overwhelming gratefulness to Jesus for raising her brother Lazarus from the dead. It was at Lazarus's celebration dinner that Mary decides to express her love and thankfulness to Jesus his extravagant gift of grace to her and her sister that gift of grace was when jesus gave them back their brother jesus probably also saved them by this act from a life of poverty and hardship women in those days were not educated and were for the most part just keepers at home only men were taught to read and to do business so mary and martha who it appears had no husband or children, would have been greatly distressed at the loss of their brother Lazarus. The scripture doesn't actually tell us why she chose to do this, but we do know that Jesus commends her for what she did and says that he received it as his anointing for burial and says that wherever the gospel is preached, her story would be retold. But there was another woman who, much earlier in Jesus' ministry, also anointed Jesus, but in an even more extravagant way. It was not in terms of money, was it extravagant, but in terms of courage and humility. But her story is only told in the Gospel of Luke. Luke was not afraid of telling stories that involved women. The stories are very similar the story of Mary and the story of this unnamed woman, but they are also very different. Many scholars say that they have to be the same woman. This was such an extraordinary thing that happened. It must be the same person. Others say it's absolutely impossible for to have been the same person. I am of the opinion that they are indeed two completely different women who both dearly love Jesus because of his extravagant grace towards them. Mary's story happened during the last week of Jesus' life in the town of Bethany, which is, if you look at a map of Israel, is down by Jerusalem, at the house of Simon the leper, who was no longer a leper, (laughs) but he kept the name. (laughs) And when Mary anointed Jesus, she was anointing her very close personal friend. For she had sat at Jesus' feet and heard him teach. Jesus was a very frequent guest in her home. So it was during the celebration in the midst of family and close friends that she anointed Jesus' head and feet. And it was Jesus who promised that she would have perpetual honor by the retelling of her story. But the unnamed woman in the Gospel of Luke, her story happened much earlier in Jesus' ministry. And it was in the vicinity of Galilee. Galilee is at the top of the map. (laughs) Maybe even in the town of Nain at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Pharisee-leper, very different. (laughs) The unnamed woman in this story came uninvited into the house of a stranger and anointed Jesus. Not in the midst of family and friends, but in the midst of judgment, condemnation, and tears. And she was not promised honor by the retelling of her story. Instead, she was promised that her sins, which were many, were forgiven her. Today we're going to take a closer look at the story of the unnamed woman and the extravagant love she displayed, which was the fruit of having received Jesus's extravagant grace. Her story begins in Luke chapter 7 verse 36. But before we go there, I want to give you some context. I want you to see what Simon the Pharisee and the unnamed woman probably saw and heard that very day just prior to this dinner. Earlier in chapter 7, we see the story of Jesus showing compassion to a woman who just lost her only son. Jesus interrupts the funeral procession and raises her son from the dead and then presents him back to her. During that time in history, a widow losing her only son was much more devastating than just the loss of a child, which in and of itself is devastating enough. With the loss of her only son came the loss of both protection and provision. The death of an only son was usually accompanied by extreme poverty. And extreme poverty often gave way to either begging or prostitution. So Jesus, by giving her back her son, was really giving her back her life. This all happened in the midst of two different crowds. There was a crowd from the city that came with the funeral and her procession. And there was a crowd that was following jesus so you have two crowds they come together and they see this event they see jesus stop which he's not supposed to do because he's a rabbi and touch an open coffin and speak to the young man and raise him from the dead so you have two crowds the one from the city and the one that's following jesus and probably the unnamed woman and simon the pharisee are in those crowds The woman is probably in the funeral procession, and Simon's probably in the crowd that's following Simon. So they both saw what happened that day. In Luke 7, 12, it says this, and when he, Jesus, came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, and the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. This little fact is important because later on in this chapter, Luke says this about the unnamed woman in verse 37, and behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, (laughs) when she knew that Jesus sat at meat at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. Luke had been made aware of where this woman was from and what her probable occupation was. She was a quote-unquote sinner. Now, the word sinner can be a euphemism for the word prostitute. <laughs> doesn't mean it necessarily is. We are reading into the scripture. We are taking clues. It doesn't actually say she was a prostitute. It's just the implication. But the word sinner can be a euphemism for this. We don't know for sure. But the way Simon's responds to her later on is the indication that she probably was a woman of ill repute, (laughs) a lady of the evening. I personally believe that she was probably there in the midst of the crowds watching as Jesus restored this woman's entire life back to her by giving her back her son. That's how dramatic a thing it was. It was a matter of life and death. It was a matter of being provided for and not being provided for. When Jesus gave back that woman's son, he gave her back her life. That's not an understatement. He gave her back her life. And this woman saw it. Even though the scripture leaves out a lot of details about this woman, we don't know how she ended up in that particular profession. You see, it could be that she too was a widow without a son. So she would have understood exactly what raising that young man from the dead did for that woman. She knew the cost that he saved her from. Right after that, we see the disciples of John the Baptist come out to check out Jesus to see if he really is the long-awaited Messiah. John sends his disciples to Jesus right after this story. You have the widow's son being raised. Then right after that, there's no chapter break. It okay? goes right into John's disciples coming. John's disciples come to this multitude, these two crowds that have met. And so the disciples asked Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Because you're not doing Messiah-like things. (laughs) You're not raising armies. You're not training for battle. Uh, We don't see you overtaking any kind of government with raising the debt. Are you really who you say you are? And what Jesus does is instead of saying, yes, I am, and professing something, he demonstrates. He demonstrates that he is the king of a different kind of kingdom. In Luke seven twenty one through 23, it says this, In that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues, and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. So Jesus says, if you look in the scriptures, basically, you will see that the Messiah is going to do these amazing things. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to cleanse lepers. Nobody on earth has ever done this. (laughs) He demonstrates to John's disciples, go back and tell John what you've seen. Because John knows the word. And John will go, oh, okay. I won't be offended at the fact that you don't seem to be doing what I think you're supposed to be doing. I won't be offended because I see that you are doing things that nobody expected you to do. You are the king of a different kind of kingdom. So, At this point, as the day progresses, we've had the young men raised from the dead, we've had the disciples come, and we have Jesus doing all of the miracles. He then turns around and starts doing miracles. So you have the unnamed woman and Simon the Pharisee seeing everything. Seeing everything that Jesus is doing. This is an amazing fact, all the things that Jesus is doing. How could they miss the fact that he was the Son of God? How could they stand there in the presence of somebody being raised from the dead, from the blind eyes being opened, and say, Nah, he's just a man. The people didn't, but the Pharisees did. So more than likely, both Simon and the unknown woman have seen everything. Right after he does that, Jesus then turns and talks to the entire combined crowd about the identity of John the Baptist as the forerunner to the Messiah, as further proof of his identity. Everyone was familiar with John's ministry. The crowd knew that John the Baptist had no problem with tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners coming to be baptized for the remission of their sins. They all believed that John was a prophet sent from God. The Pharisees are the only ones who didn't believe. And his unbelief is probably the reason he invited Jesus to come to dinner. He was so self-righteous and so superior, he thought for sure if he investigated Jesus up close and personal, he would be able to tell if he really was who he said he was. But all of these people had just heard what Jesus said in Luke 7, 29, and 30. It says this, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Okay, now Jesus has just told them, if you believe John was a prophet, your eyes are open. You're the ones that can see who I really am. You're the ones who were baptized by John. Those are the ones who are open to what God is revealing. The Pharisees who did not get baptized, their eyes are closed their hearts are hardened. they refused to believe. Even with their own eyes, they refused to believe. So in the midst of this crowd, we see a lot of very happy people, tax collectors and sinners, who believed John and were baptized for the remission of their sin. But the Pharisees, now they've just been openly condemned as those who had hard hearts and unbelief. So it is very possible that this quote-unquote sinner This unnamed woman was in the crowd who were baptized for the remission of their sins. Ah, now that would explain why she thought it might be a good idea to anoint Jesus' feet with thanksgiving. All that Jesus has declared that day would also explain Simon's distrust of Jesus because he openly rebuked the Pharisees. He had already started hardening his heart. Simon had already begun hardening his heart by rejecting the grace of God that God had offered through John the Baptist. In light of this context, in light of how everything in this chapter all happened in the same day, we always have to look at, when we look at Scripture, not just to take one little story out and think that we can understand the entire thing with just that little bit, because it's written for us to see the whole big picture. When this was written, the author said, I want you to keep in mind the widow's son raised from the dead. And I want you to keep in mind that Jesus did all the miracles and raised the dead. And I want you to keep in mind that Jesus verified that John the Baptist was who he said he was. And I want you to keep in mind that all the people that came there that were believing in Jesus had been baptized for the remission of their sins. I had never thought of that. I had always wondered why this woman would choose to do what she did because I'd always been told what a horrible sinner she was. (laughs) But in light of this context, let's look at what happened at the dinner of Simon the Pharisee and Jesus. Luke 7.36 says this, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat to meet. At this time in history, people didn't sit in chairs at a dinner table the way we do. They were usually reclined on pillows on their left side with their feet behind them. If you think of sort of like laying on your living room floor on a pillow watching TV, you normally don't keep your feet up in front of you. You get relaxed in sort of like a fetal position where your feet come behind you. That's how they reclined at dinner. And they would have a, a short table where they would use their right hand to eat with. So that's where Jesus is. He is reclined on a pillow with his feet behind him. Verse 37, and behold, a woman in the city, hmm, where is she from? <laughs> that crowd <laughs> that came from the city, hmm, yes, her, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus said at meet at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. Now you might wonder how exactly this quote-unquote sinner got into Simon's house. Well, in those days, when someone would invite a special guest to their home, What they would do is they would leave all the doors open so that anybody who was not invited to the dinner could come and be a spectator. And they didn't have TV, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so if somebody of importance came, wouldn't you want to go and hear what they're talking about? That was what they did. So you had your invited guests that sat at the table, and then you had the uninvited guest who sat around the wall. And could listen in and even ask questions. It was their entertainment. So that's what was going on. That's how she got in. She just walked in through the open doors because anybody was able to do that. Some people I've heard say she must have been a Gentile because she wore her hair down. But actually a Gentile would never have entered the house of a Jew. She must have been a Jewish lady who fell on hard times. Luke thirty seven, thirty-eight. She stood at his feet, behind him, weeping. Now weeping sounds like her tears are just trickling down her face. That is not what that word means. This is all out sobbing and wailing. <laughs> this is a woman who was overwhelmed with emotion. And she began to quote unquote wash his feet. I always wondered why she decided to, quote-unquote, wash his feet. Well, she didn't. That's not what that word means. If you look at the root word, it means to rain, to rain on. So what the author is saying is that she is so overwhelmed with emotion that her tears are falling like rain on Jesus' feet. (laughs) And then she did wipe them with the hairs of her head. Again, I have been told that she must have been a Gentile because her hair was down. And actually what I found out is that single ladies wore their hair down and married ladies wore their hair up. So a man would know by the way a woman looked if she was married or single, if she was available or not. Her head would have still been had some kind of a covering, but her hair would have been down. Now the scripture doesn't tell us she knelt down, but she must have. (laughs) Because I don't think she's standing there trying to do it from a distance, you know. Her tears are so overwhelming her that she's raining tears all over Jesus' feet. Her hair falls forward because her hair is naturally down. And she's going, Oh no, I'm getting them all wet. <laughs> she didn't intend to wash his feet with her tears. That's not why she came. She didn't expect to explode in a bundle of emotions. She didn't expect to be overwhelmed by his presence. And so she's just like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting you wet. (laughs) She's just using the hair that naturally fell. And then, and then she does what she came to do. She anoints him with her perfumed oil. Anointing an honored guest's feet was not an unusual practice, especially if they were considered most honorable. Normally, a very honored guest would have both his head and his feet anointed by his host, and even kissed. If you were considered a very great rabbi, it would not be unusual for the host to not only anoint your head with oil, but to anoint your feet with oil. They really did that as a courtesy because people were stinky. (laughs) And eating together in such close proximity, they didn't want to smell each other's stinkiness. So it was appropriate and considered very honorable to have your host anoint you with perfumed oil. He would anoint your head so that your hair would be fresh because you're going to be right up close to somebody else's head. And then they would anoint your feet because your feet were stinky. (laughs) This was normal practice. This was considered good etiquette. This was considered the appropriate way to honor a guest to make everybody at the table smell good. And if you were especially important, it would be very appropriate for you to be greeted with a kiss on the cheek and maybe even when your feet were washed, a kiss on your feet. This was all very normal practice for people who were considered very important. Simon doesn't do any of those things. (laughs) Simon doesn't do any of those things. But what I love about this woman's anointing and her pouring out of her heart and her worship is she doesn't say a single word. Not a single word. She is so overwhelmed that she has no words. None are recorded for us to hear anyway. But she was able to express this extravagant love and gratitude to Jesus without a single word, because her extravagant love was the fruit of having this received extravagant grace. She knew the cost of what Jesus had done for others. She knew Jesus was giving people back their life, giving them back their relationship with God. He was removing their judgment, removing their sentences. He was giving them back their life. She knew that when she was baptized for the remission of her sins, Jesus was giving back her life to her. And she was overwhelmed with the gratitude. At this point, I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't respond to her yet. She's wiping and anointing and crying, and it looks like he's paying no attention. I think it's because he knows by the way that she's honored him, that she has already received God's grace through faith. But there might be a chance for Simon the Pharisee to see his own need for God's grace and forgiveness. So Jesus turns his attention to Simon, verse 39. And now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, that she was doing all of this, he spake within himself saying, this man if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. You can just hear. (laughs) You can just hear his attitude. Isn't it interesting that Simon is not at all surprised at this woman's lavish expression of adoration? He is not concerned about all that she has done. He doesn't care about that at all. All he wants to know is how Jesus is going to respond to it. See, Simon thinks he's just determined the truth about who Jesus is by Jesus's lack of response. He's already decided that Jesus is not a true prophet because if he was, he certainly would not let a sinner touch him and make him unclean. So Simon has just determined in his own mind that he is better and holier than Jesus. (laughs) And obviously, Simon thinks He knows more than Jesus knows. Self-righteousness is truly amazingly deceptive. It really is. Verse 40 through 42 says this. And Jesus answering, aha. He says this man is not a prophet, but yet the prophet is going to turn around and answer what the man is thinking. (laughs) He's going to prove to Simon, I am a prophet. He says unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Simon, of course, oh, say on, master, say on. Because I'm so smart and wise and better than you. I got it, whatever it is, go ahead. So Jesus tells him a very short parable. Verse 41, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. The words, he frankly forgave them, is actually one word, zomahi, and it means to grant as a favor. That is, to gratuitously and in kindness pardon or rescue. It means to deliver, to frankly forgive, to freely give, and to grant as a favor. I like this word because it reveals something unusual in the word forgive that the normal word forgiveness doesn't normally reveal. The normal word for forgiveness is a legal word. It separates the debt from the debtor. To forgive means to be completely separated. This word doesn't necessarily mean that. What it means is it includes the idea of grace. It tells why the sin or the debt is separated. Because of the good-heartedness of the creditor. This word is never used by the other gospel writers. It's only used by Luke and by Paul. They hung out a lot. (laughs) And uh, Luke understood that everything we receive from God comes by grace. And so in this story, Luke uses this word. This word implies that not only were both debtors forgiven and completely released from their debt, but why? Because of grace. It is because of the loving kindness in the heart of the creditor, It's because the creditor chose to exercise his unmerited favor that he forgave them both. Neither debtor deserved forgiveness. Then Jesus continues. 742 says this. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? He forgave a little debt and a big debt. Which of the two are going to love him most? And Simon says, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast judged rightly. What's interesting about Simon's little attitude here, I suppose, (laughs) is in there on purpose. And it does have the attitude we normally read into it. Because Simon thought that was a stupid question. The fact that Simon says, well, I suppose reveals the fact that Simon thinks, Jesus, you ask stupid questions. (laughs) Obviously, the man who was forgiven most. (laughs) But Simon has not realized that Jesus has just set him up to see himself, to see the reality that he too is a debtor without the ability to pay. Verse 44, Jesus, he turned to the woman and he said unto Simon, Isn't that interesting? He turns to the woman, and he keeps talking to Simon. (laughs) And he says, Seest thou this woman? Simon's probably thinking, Duh. (laughs) He doesn't answer, and it's a good thing. (laughs) Because if he had answered, he probably would have said, No. I don't see a woman. I see a sinner. So it's a good thing he kept his mouth shut. Simon was judging the woman by her past sins, by what she had done and not for who she currently was, all the while failing to judge himself in the light of his own sins. Jesus continues on. He says, I entered thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet, complete break of etiquette. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. The first word kiss just means that. It was appropriate to give someone just a greeting kiss. No affection was needed. It was an etiquette thing. The second word for kiss means to kiss affectionately. (laughs) To be full of affection. That's how she was kissing him. He goes on, My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. This woman has done all the gracious things that you have failed to do. So Jesus very simply, truthfully, and openly compares all of Simon's neglectful behavior with that of the very attentive unnamed woman in front of all the guests and spectators. Now why would Jesus do this? What did Jesus hope to accomplish through such a blatant exposure of the truth? I believe Jesus hoped that Simon would recognize that his obvious, ill-mannered behavior revealed the truth of his own prideful, stubborn heart. If Simon were to really judge rightly, he would have judged himself as guilty in regard to his own sinful behavior. Poor Simon. (laughs) He had no idea how guilty he was. He was so self-righteous that when the God of the universe, who was wrapped in flesh, sat at his very own dinner table, (laughs) he still couldn't see Jesus for who he was. Nor could he see his own need for this extravagant grace. Jesus often dealt harshly with the Pharisees because they continually refused to acknowledge the truth of their own sinfulness. Jesus wanted to pour out extravagant grace on Simon. (laughs) But in order to do that, Simon needed to come to the realization that he, too, needed an extravagant grace, even for the few little debts he thought he had. Jesus wanted him to see that if God could completely redeem a great sinner like the woman, God could easily redeem a small sinner, (laughs) a little sinner... (laughs) After all, in the parable, the creditor freely forgave both debtors, the one with the small debt as well as the one with the great debt. Then Jesus says something shocking to Simon, which leaves no question to who's who in this parable. He's looking at the woman, and he says, Wherefore I say unto thee, Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For that reason she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. In the Greek, it says, Her sins, comma, many, comma, forgiven. All ready done. He wasn't telling her, I forgive you right now. He says, no, 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 no. Your sins, already forgiven. You have believed you have received. I think Jesus is trying to make Simon jealous of this great forgiveness. I think he's trying to provoke him to have faith, to receive the very same grace that Jesus is offering. The forgiveness is already established, Simon. It's already done. It's ready to be received. I think Jesus was saying, Come on, Simon, believe in me. Believe what you've seen and heard this very day. Received the absolutely free gift of God's grace. But Simon was having a really hard time with this extravagant grace. Forgiving sinners. Oh my goodness. In my opinion, there are at least two things that make receiving grace hard. One is self-condemnation. The other, self-exaltation. Self-condemnation is us having a negative sentence against ourselves based on the sinful works of the flesh. Self-exaltation, however, is a positive sentence in favor of ourselves based on the good works of our flesh. The problem with these both, of course, is that our eyes are focused on the flesh. And sometimes it's not just our flesh. Sometimes we're focused on other people's flesh. And I think part of Simon's problem might have been that he wanted the unnamed woman to stay condemned. He didn't want her forgiven. After all, she deserved it. I think sometimes our flesh wants other people's flesh to get what's coming to them. But the truth is, we can't walk in condemnation towards others without exalting our flesh above theirs. And which is exactly what Simon was doing. He had measured his flesh, and his was much better than hers, and he was sure of it. He wasn't guilty of the things that she was guilty of. But Jesus wanted Simon to get his eyes off of the flesh and onto the truth. The truth was Simon fell short of God's perfection too. He too needed an extravagant gift of grace. I also think Jesus is telling Simon, Yes, you were right. She was, past tense, a great sinner. But this woman's great and lavish expression of love is the fruit, the evidence, the proof that she has already received a great and lavish gift of forgiveness. This woman received the grace and forgiveness that was available only through faith in Jesus. And through this gift of grace, Jesus gave her back her life. Not her old sinful life, but a life of purity, of freedom from guilt and shame. By Jesus telling Simon that this woman's many sins were forgiven, Jesus was vindicating her actions as both honorable and even completely appropriate in the light of such an extravagant gift of grace. But now that this woman is revealed as the great debtor, with the great love, it means that Simon is the little debtor with the little love, <laughs> to which Simon says nothing. We don't know if Simon accepted the truth. We don't know that if he took what he saw that day and decided that he needed an extravagant grace too. The story doesn't tell us. But at least he had the truth presented to him in a way he couldn't deny. After all of this has happened, after the truth has been exposed, the Simon loves little, and this woman loves greatly, Jesus finally says to the woman, this is, he hasn't talked to her this whole time. He hasn't said anything. She's still there, kissing his feet and crying. He finally says to her, thy sins are forgiven. And in the Greek, there is no R. Thy sins forgiven. He is saying to her, they are removed as far as the east is from the west. That they are completely separated from her. He is saying to her, you are completely released from your unpayable debt. Because that's what that word meant. You are completely released from your unpayable debt. Jesus didn't see this woman as a sinner who needed to be punished. Jesus saw a woman who, through grace and faith, got her life back. Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. And this woman, at some point, understood that her sins were too great and that there was nothing she could do in her own strength to make herself right before God. She understood that the only way for her to be free from her debt was for her debt to be forgiven. And only a God with great compassion for the helpless would be willing to release such a debtor. This woman had witnessed that very day the heart of God the Father through Jesus, his Son. He had freely given grace to all who needed their life to be given back to them. Jesus raised the dead, healed the sick, forgave their sin, and accepted tax collectors and sinners into the kingdom of God, all by faith in this extravagant grace. Simon had been right. She had been a great sinner, but she was no longer a great sinner, even though she still bore the name. She had become a great lover, a great lover of God, because she realized that he so greatly and freely loved her first. I think it probably just made her cry more. <laughs> in verse 50, it says, He said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Jesus reminds her before she leaves that it is her faith in him that has received forgiveness, not her works, not her offering, not even her love. Her works, her offering, and her love are simply the fruit of having received an extravagant grace. Then he tells her to go in peace. Go in peace actually means walk into wholeness. Peace is shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken. So what he says to her is your sins are forgiven, walk into wholeness. I think Jesus is saying to her, let me continue to give back to you your life. Let me restore all that has been lost. Keep walking by faith in my love and my goodness. When we believe and receive by faith God's absolutely free, loving kindness, the evidence of our having received his grace is the response of our heart, a heart full of love and thankfulness. Faith always says thank you. In fact, faith never stops saying thank you. That's what the unnamed woman came to express to Jesus. A million thank yous that were too big for mere words. His extravagant grace always births an extravagant love in the heart of faith. Amen. Father God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you let us look into the stories and the things that actually happened so that we can see what kind of God you are. You are not a harsh taskmaster waiting for us to perform to be good enough to receive, but you freely give grace to whosoever will believe. You freely gave back that woman's son and thereby gave her back her life. You freely give to whoever needs what they need to have back their life. You came to give us life and life more abundantly. You want us to have all that you have bought and paid for. You desire us to see the truth of your extravagant grace and fall into an extravagant love with you. Father, I pray that you would help us to see those opportunities when we too can act like a Pharisee and judge somebody else's flesh. Remind us that no flesh glories in your presence, good or bad. We are acceptable in thy sight by grace. You have made us acceptable by grace. You have washed away our sins. And even our good works are nothing in the light of your grace. I thank you, Father God, for this woman who displayed an extravagant love. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that her extravagant love was fruit, not payment. It was the evidence that she had truly believed what she saw and heard. It was evidence that she had received your grace. Because we can't receive grace and not be changed. Father God, I thank you. Thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you invite us to walk and live by faith in your goodness and grace. I thank you, Father God, that you delight in giving back our lives to us. In Jesus' name, amen.